This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. Longtime listeners know that we often lump Turkish airlines in with the big three Gulf carriers, Emirates, Qatar Airways, and Etihad. We do that, of course, because the airlines do have some similarities. Turkish, like the Gulf carriers, is taking advantage of its central location to connect, really, almost the entire planet. And all four carriers are growing aggressively. In fact, we recently reported in Airline Weekly that Turkish will soon surpass British Airways in available sea kilometers. Remarkable. But in one way, Turkish is clearly different from the other three. Whereas the big three are all very homogenous, Turkish offers a blend in one major aspect. So what major aspect am I talking about? That'll be the first question on this week's show. We'll also talk about Cathay Pacific's return to respectable profits, how LATAM is weathering a tough environment, the good fortune at Ethiopian Airlines, and United's JV with Air New Zealand. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. He's Seth, I'm Jason, and you are more than welcome in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. So what is the major difference between Turkish Airlines and the big three Gulf carriers, Emirates, Qatar, and Etihad? The answer is that Turkish, unlike the others, has an extensive narrow-body fleet. In fact, roughly two-thirds of its fleet is single-aisle aircraft. Compare that to Qatar Airways, which has less than a quarter narrow bodies, Etihad, just slightly more than a quarter, and there's Emirates, who, of course, has zero narrow-body planes. Seth, what does the fleet mix mean to Turkish? Well, uh, first of all, in, in very simple terms, we've written about this uh, the, in the past in Airline Weekly. Uh, kind of an underappreciated fact in the world is that narrow bodies seem to disproportionately produce profits. Uh, you know, I'm talking in, in, in very blunt, crude terms here. Yeah, obviously, there are highly profitable airlines that are, uh, you know, that, that are largely wide body and, and, and vice versa, unprofitable airlines that uh, fly all narrow bodies. If you look around the world, the most profitable airlines uh, tend to be either all or mostly narrow body operators. Uh, you know, just think about them. I mean, sure, the ultra LCCs, you know, Ryanair and, and, and Spirit and so forth. Um, but, you know, then there's an airline like Copa, which you know, right now is is uh, struggling a bit because of what's going on in its region. But always among the most profitable airlines, you know, a, a full service airline with different classes of service and all the other complexities, but all narrow bodies um, and, and, and lots of other examples like that. There is a correlation, uh, you know, leaving aside cause and effect and so forth. There is unquestionably a correlation between how great a percentage of your fleet is narrow body and how much money you make when you look at airlines? Yeah, Turkish is, uh, although not exclusively a narrow body carrier, uh, largely one. And, and so, you know, just going by that, and I, I keep saying it, but, you know, but by that very broad generalization, but one with truth to it, you know, that does give them somewhat uh, of, an, of an advantage there, particularly because with their narrow bodies, they can reach all of Europe. That's important, too. 
Now, the golf carriers, you mentioned Etihad and, and, uh, and Qatar have, have narrow bodies. Uh, they can reach parts of Europe. You fly uh, Qatar, you, you might fly from uh, Athens down to Doha uh, on a narrow body. I use that example because I did it once. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the farther uh, sort of south and east you go in Europe, the more reachable it is. They fly, uh, Qatar actually flies a, a, a very lightly configured all business class. Uh, narrow body from from London down down to Doha, but you can't do it with with the full payload. So anyway, Turkish can and and also it's it's not just a question of the capability of the aircraft; it's because of their geography. You know, it's simply closer to a lot of Europe. They can compete for some traffic flows that the Gulf carriers can't compete for. Nobody's going to backtrack from Europe over to Gulf hubs to oh, the Americas, let's say. But people will do it from parts of Europe, especially you know parts of, of Central and Eastern Europe over Istanbul. So uh, so it, it's important for them. Now, you know, having said that, of course, the Gulf carriers have certain advantages that Turkish doesn't have. But yeah, generally speaking, on balance, you'd have to say that, that they like their mostly narrow-body fleet and and related to it, their their access to all of Europe and to a lot of key traffic flows with that fleet. This is kind of a ponderous question. Is Turkish more like Emirates or is it more like British Airways? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, it, funny you ask it. Somebody actually a, a few weeks ago asked us, looking at our newsletter, we have, for, for people who don't read, read the newsletter, we have these uh, two pages of uh, stock quotes. Uh, it shows, you know, this week, last week, and, and compared to a year ago, you know how much they've risen or, or, or declined. There were some comments about what's going on at, at, at most of the major uh, airlines around the world, and um, and and the the airlines are roughly grouped together by region and, and just sort of other characteristics. Not nothing too scientific, but you know, all of the uh, North American carriers are in one place, the European carriers in another, and so forth. And, and Turkish is in a group of airlines that includes the uh, the Gulf carriers. And so anyway, this person wrote into us and said, you know, why there and not with the European carriers? Uh, and I mean, he made good arguments. You know, after all, it is. Well, first of all, it, it is in Europe. Uh, you know, Istanbul's main airport is on the European side. Turkish is a member of the Association of, of, of European Airlines. You have the regional lobby. Certainly the Gulf carriers aren't and, and, and so forth. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's it's not British Airways. You know, it, it does compete for some of those kinds of traffic flows that the Gulf carriers compete for and that British uh, Airways in particular uh, in its part of, of the world would not compete for. You know, somewhere, someone flying from Central or Eastern Europe to most points on the other side uh, of the Gulf hubs, for example, to 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 India or what have you. Yeah, another major difference with between Turkish and BA in particular is that BA carries a lot more local traffic, you know, London because of, of, of the capacity constraints that Heathrow in particular uh, and then the strong local demand there, less connecting traffic, whereas Turkish, uh, although it has uh, you know, certainly a strong local traffic base, definitely depends more on, on connecting traffic flows. Turkish had a negative 2% operating margin in the fourth quarter and a positive 7% margin for the year. Not a disaster, but not great either, given how low fuel prices are. We talked in November about the declining revenues for Turkish and the Gulf carriers. How did revenues look in Q4? Yeah, not great. Uh, you know, despite, uh, what was it, 16% ASK capacity growth year over year this past fourth quarter compared to a year earlier, Turkish's revenues for the quarters, uh, its total revenues, actually managed to decline by about 2%. But you know, pretty remarkable uh, when your revenues decline in, in light of that kind of capacity growth. Uh, you know, it was a fuel cost story in terms of, of how it 
managed to to do as as well as it still uh, did indeed manage to do their unit revenues of course you know, i was just talking the total revenues. unit revenues fell off a cliff you know, not obviously not the only airline in the world that experienced that but uh yeah no it, it, it's it's uh as for a lot of airlines around the world weak revenues great cost uh situation because primarily of, of uh, fuel cost and uh you know, of course, it's just a question for all airlines of which of those two facts carried the day. And and, and for Turkish, under a lot of preveni- uh, pressure, rather, because the uh, the revenues are so weak. Something else we've talked about is the meteoric growth of all the carriers in the region. Turkish grew capacity by 14 percent in 2015. Their CEO has said publicly on the Cranky Flyer blog, Turkish is looking at 10 percent growth next year. Still a lot of growth. Can it be profitable growth? Yeah, good question. But by, by the way, that was a good interview on Craig Key Flyer. So if you haven't if you haven't seen it, just just go look it up. Uh, Brett Snyder interviewing nice plug. Yeah, no, he 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 does a great job. Um, and uh, no, I enjoyed reading that. Yeah, it, it's can it be profitable growth? Well, if fuel costs remain as low as I was just about to say as they've been, but of course here even as we speak, fuel costs have been ticking up recently. We talked about it in the past. You you know fuel costs aren't going to go to zero. They can't go negative. So, you know, you knew they were going to plateau at some point and perhaps rise. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing here. So, you know, up until now, you, know, you could get away with still growing rapidly. The growth tends to depress uh, yields and unit revenues. But, you know, if, if fuel costs are falling as rapidly as they had been falling until not too long ago, you can you can still remain rather profitable. Yeah, it, it, it'll get tough for Turkish and other rapidly growing airlines if fuel costs start to tick up and revenue trends uh, don't improve. But, you know, in, in the long term, probably the, you know, you will see less capacity growth, all things being equal. If fuel is more expensive again than we would have otherwise seen. But another thing we've talked about in the past is the lag time uh, between fuel price movements and, um, and and capacity moves. You know, if, if I mean, in simple terms, if fuel spikes tomorrow, the people flying tomorrow are flying on tickets that they bought, you know, in the past. That fares that prevailed then. The capacity flying tomorrow is capacity was planned, uh, you know, many months ago, and so sudden fuel price increases have have just a decidedly negative impact on 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 all airlines in in the short term. And even if it's not that sudden, you know, you, you would have lag time before capacity could, you know, even if airlines do respond by by uh, by uh, sort of dialing down the capacity growth before it could uh, start to get the the unit revenues in check in terms of not continuing to decline. Don't mean to punt with my usual answer to a lot of these questions about the airline industry. I tell people all the time, you know, they'll ask me certain things, you know, about, you know, if something's going to happen. I say, well, you tell me what's going to happen with fuel prices and I'll tell you everything else. And, you know, by implication, you know, we don't know. Nobody knows what's going to happen to them. But 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 um, but yeah, those growth rates, you know, even down to 10 percent. Uh, you know, in terms of can that be highly profitable growth, it's, it would depend on, uh, on 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 cheap fuel absent, uh, you know, just something macro changing to to increase global demand in a way that it's not increasing right now. OK, in addition to the Gulf carriers, how much of a headache is Pegasus for Turkish? Here we have an airline that also hubs in Istanbul. Like Turkish, it has a mix of domestic and international traffic, and they serve that with only narrow-body aircraft. In 2015, Pegasus, Pegasus showed some signs of greatness, too, with a 28% operating margin in Q3. 
That figure plummeted in Q4 to a negative 13%, and they finished the year with a rather pedestrian 5% operating margin. Those numbers suggest they are at least viable. But what would bother me, if I'm Turkish, again, is Pegasus' growth rate is pushing 20% per year. Yeah, and that's capacity that's in the marketplace. You know, when we were talking before about Turkish's growth, you know. Right. They're they're not they're not in total control of of, of the capacity in the marketplace. Uh, you know, when Pegasus grows, that uh, very much impacts Turkish's own unit revenues as well as the unit revenues of, of other competitors, of course. But there is no more direct competitor than uh, than Turkish. Uh, you mentioned they have a hub in Istanbul, too, by the way, to, you know, to be clear, it's, it's it's at a different airport. It's at uh, Sabia Gokcan across the Bosporus on the on the Asian side of of, uh, of Istanbul, but an airport with very much with its own ca- catchment area. I mean, Istanbul's a huge city with, you know, although uh, not quite the same traffic base uh, on that side of the water, certainly uh, certainly a very large one, too. And yeah, Pegasus is, is, is seems to be in a situation now where after years of very profitable growth, where it's it's maybe running up against, uh, you know, just, just harder to find those easy opportunities. Um, you, you know, you, you mentioned those numbers. You said 28% positive operating margin in, in Q3 and then negative 13% in Q4. You know, to be clear, Q4 is always worse than, than, than Q3. That's just a, a seasonal thing. But that differential w- was much greater than it was a year earlier. About, I looked it up, you know, you know 10 or 11 points worse of the drop off from the third quarter to the fourth quarter than it had been a year earlier. So that tells you that they're running into, uh, you know, some some rough waters here, surely related to a lot of the events happening in Turkey and, and the region, uh, terrorism and so forth. Of course, just this week, and this wouldn't have been in those Q4 numbers, there was just another awful attack in Ankara. Um, this is all impacting demand, um, you know, even though these airlines certainly do a fair amount of business that's that doesn't involve travel to or from Turkey. They do a fair amount of business that does involve that, and Pegasus especially, you know, because they don't have the, the long-haul network and as much of a global network, uh, you know, very very much dependent on, uh, on, on domestic travel and travel uh, to and from Turkey. So yeah, they're they're uh, they're running up against it now, and and they're one to watch because uh, certainly one of the uh, uh, one of the real stars in recent years, um, you know, a carrier that's that's very much emerged onto the global scene, uh, you know, by all appearances, is a well managed airline that uh, implementing a low cost model very well, uh, you know, in a market that clearly had demand for it. But uh, let, let's see here in the next few quarters if they're running into uh, into something more than momentary trouble. Both of Istanbul's airports are dealing with some severe congestion. How big of a problem is that for either airline? Well, it, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, on, uh, on one hand, congestion. I mean, look, we talked earlier about Heathrow, right? You know, it, it, uh, we know the story there. Uh, sure, there, there are certainly some flying that British Airways would like to do that it can't do. Um, but on the other hand, it, it you know keeps capacity in check and, and keeps yields high. Well. You know, at any capacity constrained airport, you know, although there are a few as constrained as Heathrow, it's it's going to be somewhat uh, the same story. Um, so yeah, in the case of Pegasus, what has happened is that uh, all of a sudden there's all this new competition at Sabia Gokchen. So so just as the airport has sort of you know reached this point where yeah, you can't just keep growing as as wildly as before, you know, they don't have the place to themselves anymore. Uh, Turkish has has started a number of flights there, um, but also well, those Gulf carriers you talked about before. Are now flying to uh, to that airport, so they don't have the 
quite the same niche that they had before where, you know, this airport that, as I said, you know, although not the main airport, not the airport that the majority of people in Istanbul prefer is the airport that millions of people in this giant city do prefer. And, and uh, you know, previously it was kind of mostly theirs, um, that, that side of the city, and now not so much so. But, but always the capacity situation, always a double-edged sword. Istanbul, of course, building an all-new airport due to open in, in uh, 2018, which if, if usual airport punctuality in terms of opening dates is, is any guide, I guess, uh, you know. <laughs> Who knows when it when it really will open, but uh, on on track so far, and that'll provide new opportunities for both of those airlines, but also uh, all kinds of new competing capacity. All right, let's close that portion of the show with one of our world famous existential questions. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Seth, who would you rather be? Turkish Airlines with its more diversified network and fleet or Emirates with its awesome intercontinental network, its solid home market in Dubai and Jennifer Aniston as spokesperson. Oh, well, I just changed my mind. <laughs> you said that last part. Hard, hard to argue with Jennifer Aniston, uh, you know, with all due respect to Kobe Bryant and, and other uh, you know, famous uh, Turkish Airlines spokespeople. Yeah, you'd have to go with Turkish because of the access to Europe, which is just better, and the huge local population. I, I mean, it, it's... Uh, of course, the the story in Dubai is incredible, and the other Gulf carriers too. Uh, the geography is great, and the rest of it. But uh, you know, Turkey has 75 million people. Now they're not all wealthy. Uh, you know, many of them have yet to ever be on an airplane. But but it, you know, it's a big economy. Um, Istanbul itself has has uh, as mentioned before, just just a huge local population, and uh, and just being there on Europe's doorstep, but with non-european labor costs uh, that that's that's you know we talked earlier about how you know narrow bodies sort of correlate with 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 profits another thing if you look around the world um at, at airlines that tend to outperform very often they are airlines that are located very close to a high cost region but outside that region but they have low cost copa again uh you know something we talked about them before in a different context. Copa is one of those airlines that that you know competes for a lot of the same business that the uh, that the U.S. carriers in particular compete for to points in South America. But you know, but they have Panamanian labor costs. Um, you know, one of the reasons, uh, although certainly not the only one, uh, why why they've they've long been among the more successful airlines in the world. Iceland Air is another that, although not among the most profitable airlines in the world, certainly sort of has, has outperformed relative to expectations. They, for a long time, especially when when you know Iceland's currency was 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 very weak, you know, had that kind of an advantage competing for those same you know Europe to North America traffic flows, but with with lower costs than uh, than most of the European airlines have. Uh, Turkish is is very much another one of those. You know, when they're going up against you know, Lufthansa and others, Lufthansa, to be clear, a partner within Star Alliance, but, you know, but a competitor in in, in, uh, in many realms, partner also with, with the, uh, the LCC that they own jointly and so forth. But anyway, a competitor for global traffic flows. I, I mean, just imagine Lufthansa's labor cost versus Turkish's labor cost. Uh, not just picking on Lufthansa, same, uh, you know, same, same true for uh, for Air France and, and, and others. So, so that's a very big advantage. Now, the Gulf carriers have competitive labor costs too, but again, they don't compete for some of the same traffic flows that Turkish because of its geography and its narrow bodies that can penetrate sort of those those secondary and tertiary markets in Europe rather efficiently. 
you know, they 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 just can't compete in quite the same way for for some of those traffic flows. So, uh, you know, Emirates, an amazing story, obviously changed the world. Uh, you know, I, I mean, notwithstanding what uh, what what uh, you know what a lot of uh, European and North, and North American carriers might think about them. I mean, there's there's no denying the fact that they've absolutely changed the world. You know, they've forced everybody else to raise their service standards and so forth. But yeah, who would you rather be? Um, uh, Probably Turkish. Moving to Asia, Cathay Pacific reported its second half results last week. Cathay achieved an 8% operating margin in the second half, and that gave it a 7% operating margin for the year. These are not very sexy numbers at first glance, but I imagine Cathay is glad to have them because we wrote in Airline Weekly those results lifted them out of a four-year rut. Explain that. Yeah, that, that 7% margin d- down considerably from, from it was, I believe, an 11% margin in, in 2010. You know, in, in that context, not great, but uh, but yeah, much better than the past few years. 2010, by the way, was sort of the golden year of airline profits for most of the world um, outside North America. You know, North American carriers, well, U.S. carriers especially, are are doing uh, better than ever, but um, but yeah, most carriers in the world, uh, you know, particularly East Asian carriers, and certainly Cathay Pacific among them, did did particularly well in 2010. And yeah, it, it's it's uh, you know it's an airline that has benefited as have most others from cheaper fuel. I mean that's that's a huge part of the story. And in their case, unlike some of those other airlines that we talked about before, you know. Unlike uh, Turkish, where um, uh, where, you know, where the revenue trends are so severe, uh, yeah, in Cathay's Pacific, uh, or in Cathay's case rather, managing to expand margin uh, margins with uh, you know revenues under some pressure, of course, but the falling fuel cost uh, saving the day, and 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 fuel costs that fell despite some uh, some rather heavy wrong way hedges, and so the good news for them or for any and for any other airline that has that situation where you know um, fuel costs were uh, didn't fall as fall fast as you would have hoped because of bad hedges. Good news, that's a tailwind going forward, uh, you know, into this year because as those hedges continue wearing off, even if fuel costs. Do not continue declining as they're certainly not doing right now. Uh, you know, just having some of those bad hedges go away can uh, can can provide some further fuel cost declines in terms of the uh, the effective prices that they're paying. Moving to South America, in recent episodes we talked about Avianca's nine percent margin and then Copa's seven percent margin, and last week Latam reported a six percent Q4 margin. That was down from nine percent the year before. Given what's happening in Brazil, that's not too terrible. But given the fact that its Q4 fuel costs were down 43% year over year, that's not a great result, is it? No, it's not. But uh, you, you said it. Brazil, um, you know, compared to Avianca and Copa, Tom, obviously, with much greater Brazil exposure because of the Tom side of the airline, uh, you know, Brazil, very roughly half the company or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the yields are just absolutely plummeting. You know they they've been trying to reallocate capacity and, and doing what they can, but it uh you know things have have fallen so far so fast in Brazil that it's uh, it's just nearly impossible to 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 get ahead of it. So you know we'll see here going forward if things stabilize. I mean uh, you know they they uh they they seem even cautious about uh, saying that you know nobody's really um, ready to call a bottom yet in in Brazil. Um and and of course with the Olympics this summer got on the surface might might sound like good news you know might might sound like an opportunity but we also what happened with the world cup 
in 2014 where corporate travelers stayed away. It was overall negative for airlines. And, and that, of course, was in just a much better environment overall. So hard, hard to be too optimistic here going forward. Yeah, you, you got to say that given everything that they face, uh, look, there's no way that they can be among the more profitable airlines in the world as they were at one point. I mean, you know, there were there were times over the past several years when they were, uh, you know, up there in the top 10. You know, that that has now become impossible, probably doing as as really as well as they could hope to do in in this uh, in this environment. Um, you know, with with some some things to look forward to. I mean, look, they they uh, are hoping to have joint ventures with American and with IAG. That would be um I mean, if we just look at the joint ventures around the world that that uh, that those airlines are involved in, you know, every reason to think that that would be very positive for Latam. Po- positive also for American and IAG, but Latam as the smaller company and an airline, uh, sort of in serious need right now of some kind of impetus, you know, for things to get better. That kind of virtual consolidation, you know, reducing some competition and and uh, and, and being able to offer more. Uh, you know, in terms of frequencies to, to key business destinations and so forth uh, with with those partners would be very positive. So that, at least, if you're comparing them to uh, Avianca and Copa, is, uh, you know, is is a is a bigger tailwind than 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 either of those airlines have at the, at the moment. All right. It's earnings season, which means we always got to keep moving. So we'll head to our fourth continent. Ethiopian Airlines operates a lot like Turkish Airlines. It's also close to the Gulf hubs, and it's also well positioned to be the gateway to its home continent. But unlike Turkish, Ethiopian is seeing revenues increase. They were up 6% in the year, leading up to June 2015. Operating margin was 10% for their fiscal year. How are revenues rising for Ethiopian? Well, Partly because capacity is rising. No, that's true for Turkish too. But um, but yeah, it was six percent revenue growth on seven percent ASK capacity growth. So um, your know, revenues not uh, not quite keeping track, quite keeping pace anyway with capacity growth. But uh, but having said that, that's pretty good. I mean, look, they are the clear airline superstar in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, the big three airlines are Kenya Airways. Ethiopian and South African. Kenya and South African both deeply troubled right now. Ethiopian doing quite well. One caveat I should mention, just in fairness to uh, to most other airlines that we talk about, uh, you know, most airlines have their financials audited by one of the big global accounting firms. You know, even Emirates, which isn't the most transparent airline in, in some other ways, their financials are audited by one of those big global accounting firms, whereas Ethiopian's figures are audited by a government auditor. That and well, the government also owns Ethiopian, so not quite the level of independence uh, that you would want to see. Not that we have any particular reason to doubt the figures, and they are, by all accounts and appearances, a very well-managed airline. Um, but you know, just not the same degree of scrutiny, perhaps, uh, of those figures. You have to take them with a little bit of a grain of salt. Although, uh, although there's no question that they're rather clearly doing better than uh, than than the other big African carriers. Okay. Final item of the day. In last week's show, we were discussing Air New Zealand, and you emphasized the fact that ANZ doesn't have a joint venture with United, which is its North American counterpart in the Star Alliance. Two days later, United and Air New Zealand announced their JV. Seth, I imagine you like this move? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, they, and to be clear, this is all pending regulatory approval. You know, you wonder when United began their own uh, service to New Zealand or planned their service to New Zealand, whether they had envisioned this already or not. But, uh, you know, anyway, they're going to have to go convince regulators that this is going to be good for consumers that, uh, you know, that although it will, you know, ostensibly reduce competition, 
because they will no longer, as we discussed last week, be in competition. You know, right now they're Star Alliance members, but it's competing capacity. They can't jointly plan it or price it, and that would change. Uh, that you know would create so many new opportunities for for travelers. That uh, that this will be good for everybody. It, yeah, it'll it'll almost certainly be good for the airlines, for Air New Zealand especially. I mean, it, it this is just by definition, more important for them than it is for United because it's it's just a bigger percentage of their business. You know, j- just some more stability for them. Uh, we, we, we talked about, uh, you know, how impressive they are, how they manage to, you know, to be as profitable as they are despite the, uh, the geographic challenges that they have and so forth. Um, but still, when you're sitting there in a, in a fairly small market uh, and you're sort of subject to, you know, competitive capacity increases just a little bit and all of a sudden you know they can really dent your business for them it, it would be good to have this to be just just to be big, part of something bigger and uh it, and again as i said it before when we were talking about latam how hey you know these jvs just seem to work united is is a is a part of other jvs uh the one with lufthansa although yeah, by all appearances, maybe not as successful for United as the other European JVs are for their respective members. But uh, you know, they're in one with all the pond. Uh, seems to go well, and and uh, so yeah, this this uh, is probably going to be good for for both carriers, assuming it's approved. And do you think your comments last week had anything anything to do with the timing of the JV? <laughs> I think we'd be giving ourselves way too much credit <laughs> to think that they uh, they said, oh, that's a good idea, and then managed to uh, to plan the whole thing and prepare their applications for for, for antitrust immunity yeah, a day or two after uh, after we spoke. But uh, it's certainly taken as a compliment uh, that, oh, I guess great minds think alike, right? <laughs> that we were indeed talking about something that they were planning to. If this were TV and not radio, you would see I said that with a perfectly straight face. Absolutely. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. Thanks for your prescient comments, Seth. And here's a little public service message. The best way to listen to the Airline Weekly Lounge is with your smartphone. Go to Stitcher or iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and then listen while you exercise, while you travel, or on your commute. Until next week, thanks for joining us.